Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guests are authors Linda Adams and Abby Kerno-Chavez. Today we will discuss The Loyalist Team. Linda and Abby are contributing authors of The Loyalist Team, How Trust, Candor, and Authenticity Create Great Organizations. They hone their expertise inside some of the largest and most powerful businesses operating today. They have led the human resources, talent management, leadership development, and organizational effectiveness functions of multiple Fortune 500 companies like Ford Motor Company, PepsiCo, Accenture, Newmont Mining, and Level 3 Communications. Currently, they are two of four partners who comprise the Trispective Group catering to companies like PetSmart, Equinix, Kaiser Permanente, Hitachi Data Systems, and Vail Resorts. Linda and Abby, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. What are we referring to when we say the loyalist team? What is that word loyalist all about? So the the loyalist team would be um, the the team of your dreams. I would encourage listeners just to pause for a moment and to think about the best team experience they've ever had. And then to think about what made that team experience the best that they've ever had. Uh, And I would guarantee that the characteristics that they would come up with would be definitely some of the defining characteristics of a loyalist team. So a place where um, you have each other's backs, where there is trust, where there is candor, um, and where people get to do their best work because they know um, they're part of a team that's not going to allow them to fail. So that would be the loyalist team, the best team ever. Linda, that sounds like a fantasy place. I'm going to play devil's (laughs) advocate because I know some people in the audience are saying, Where is that team? I've never worked in a team like that. Are there really teams out there that have this trust and this candor and that they've got your back? Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. Um, Linda, I don't know if you want to – you gave us the definition, so I'm going to put the ball in your court. Sure. Um, So I would start by saying 15% of the teams that we work with um, absolutely fall in that loyalist space. And, and it, I, I laughed when you said so many people um, won't believe it. They've never experienced it. There's actually a story in our book um, that happened to me where having a conversation with a team I was working with and asking them to describe their best team experience. After we had gone around the room, one person said, um, you know, I really don't know what you're talking about. It, it sounds like a unicorn to me. Um, So there definitely are people who haven't had those experiences, Uh but we know from our work that they're out there, um, and we work with teams uh, literally around the globe who are striving to get there and being intentional about being there. I always say, and you will have to tell me if this is true, that the tempo, the environment, the working environment, the core philosophy of the company, that it comes from the top, that if you have quality owners, managers, an executive team, then it trickles down. And if you have 
folks who are unhappy and the opposite of authentic and trustworthy, et cetera, then that also trickles down and you have an environment that is all of those bad things. What, is that true in your experience? Abby, you want to take this one? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, we see the same thing in all the work that we do. And, you know, the tone is set at the top of an organization. And, you know, the, the better a leader is at building culture, at setting really clear expectations for the kind of um, behavior and um, sort of rules they want to see folks follow in the way that they operate together and the way they build teams is, um, you know, absolutely critical. You know, at the same time, one of the things that was really interesting, you know, after, you know, all of us essentially dedicating our life's work to, um, you know, organizational effectiveness and culture and teams and leaders, um, when we took our, you know, close to eight years of true data and and broke it apart, one of the things that we found is one of the most um, important things to team success isn't necessarily the um, the leader, although the leader is, is critically important. The most important thing is the relationships um, and the agreements and the accountabilities that, that, that people on the teams have to one another. So that was a really surprising fact to us. We thought the role of leader would, would come out as the most prominent, um, and in fact, it didn't. So that tells us something about how much folks on teams that may not have, you know, the, the best, most perfect leader in place um, can, can really make a positive impact towards the team and the environment and the culture. If I could just add to what Abby was saying there, just to put a, a sharp point on it. Of course. 70% 70, 70 of the, the variance um, of the difference between loyalist teams and what we categorize as the worst teams, saboteur teams, 70% of that variance is attributable to what Abby said around the relationships and the nature and quality of those relationships on the team. Only 15% of the variance is directly attributable to the impact the leader has on the team. That's uh, pretty amazing. So essentially in this environment or based on this description, teams may almost be able to dispose of a leader, good or bad, if the relationships are solid and positive. Am I understanding correctly? Absolutely. I mean, that's the argument that we, we make and one of the reasons we wrote the book in the way that we did was to, to empower team members, um, and, and not just team leaders, so it's both, but it's to empower team members and team leaders to really understand that they can, they can significantly influence the environment they find themselves in by, by how they choose to engage and behave in that environment. So here's a question that comes to mind when we talk about team members and not just team leaders, though I suspect this crosses both. One of the most difficult things is when you have someone who has a deferring opinion, someone who thinks out of the box or has a different perspective because of their personality. We all know who those people are. Sometimes they're disruptive because they're just troublemakers, but sometimes they're disruptive because they genuinely have a different perspective. And their herd mentality generally wants to quash that. People don't want to hear dissenting opinions. 
But studies tell us that those opinions are very valuable, sometimes even more valuable than the group think, because they make you see things that you don't otherwise see. What have you seen in relationship to these deferring opinion holders and how they work within the loyalist team? Abby? Yeah, what a great question. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the core traits um, was when we work with teams especially that we really work to help them to, to think about is this idea of assuming positive intent. And the importance of assuming positive intent, you know, we, when we think about our colleagues, you know, people show up to work to, um, to make an impact, positive impact, to, to do a great job, to do, to do the, what, what they believe is important, what they believe the team and the organization thinks they should be doing. So people don't show up to screw up, right? They show up to do a great job. And when we, when we misunderstand or we hear differences of opinion, I think going back to that core value that says, I'm going to assume positive intent, which is what loyalist teams do always, um, you know, it puts you in that place where you can seek first to understand. You know, if we go back to basic Covey principles, which are always great, right? It's that idea that says, if I don't agree with you, uh, I'm not going to judge it first. Instead, what I'm going to do is really work to understand and come from a place of curiosity. And, you know, in loyalist teams, there's a lot of uh, dissenting opinions. And, and we actually encourage that in the healthiest teams that we see. They have lots and lots of different opinions, and they know how to get it out on the table. There's no undiscussables, and they work through their toughest problems um, with lots of different opinions about how to solve them together to get to the best answer and the best solutions and the best decisions. Linda, how does that happen? Because a lot of the times our gut reaction when we just shoot from the hip is to say no to someone who has a different perspective. How does that team dynamic work so that these deferring opinions, and especially if you have a team that has several people like that, how does that come about that you have a team where this works with, with such a positive climate? So I think the first place that the team needs to start is by um, expressing what they want from the team. And one of the ways we have teams do that is to um, lay out their expectations through a series of, we call them operating norms, that talk to expectations that you have about how the team will work together. So Abby mentioned assuming positive intent. I mean, that's definitely would be one of the norms that we would see, I think, on every uh, slate of operating norms we would develop. But to talk about our expectations, that um, another norm might be we'll debate vigorously and explore issues thoroughly. Um, but once a decision is made, we will support the decision of the team or the team leader. So we, we actually put that out there as a set of expectations and some rules of the road around how a team will actually engage um, and, and lean into and welcome debate and, and those, um, those dissenting or differing opinions. I'm, I'm going to sound a bit like the numbers maven today, and I'll throw another number at you. We know from our research that loyalist teams are 292 times more likely 
to spend time debating and discussing difficult issues and problems as they make decisions together. And when, when that happens, you then have everyone aligned behind the decision and the decision is then executed. And so on loyalist teams, you don't end up with the meeting after the meeting. You don't end up with pocket vetoes being one of the standard operating principles of the team. And when you leave a room and a decision's made, you know that it's the best possible decision because every possible perspective and point of view has been vetted and either embraced or set aside. Uh, first of all, love numbers. Any kind of objective data that helps us get a grasp, I mean, it's a point of reference, of course, is always welcome. What is the source, for example, of that 292 times mm -hmm. more likely to discuss difficult issues and problems? What is the source of that, Linda? So we have a proprietary assessment that we developed probably about seven years ago now. I'm starting to lose track of time um, as things move so quickly. But this assessment we've used with hundreds of teams across multiple industries um, and with businesses at all arcs and at all points in the arc of the life cycle from startup to legacy, um, from nonprofit to education to um, multinational, multi-billion global companies. And this assessment allows us to then uh, characterize and label teams into one of four distinct units, with the loyalist team being the highest performing, highest functioning team, and saboteur teams being the, the, the lowest performing teams. And so um, having, having all of this data, we spend a lot of time um, data mining and really understanding what the insights were behind the, the, the amount of data that we had. Um, and it's generated some amazing insights. And Abby and I, Abby mentioned the, um, the relationship variance. Um, that, as an HR professional, that blew my mind um, that that was the difference that we were seeing if we were really able to upskill uh, what was happening on the team. So there's lots of powerful insights in the data that we've collected from this assessment. As an HR professional, you found this 70% number that Abby shared earlier. Is that what you were talking about? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. You found that surprising. Why is that? So in organizations, we tend to really invest very heavily at the top of the organizational tree. And I'm not suggesting in any way that companies should move away from that. But I think about the, the effort and energy that goes into individual executives who are, are pretty seasoned in their career. Um, and, what, and, and that's something I, I did for the 30-odd years I was in corporate, big supporter of that. And while we would do work at the team level and while we might invest um, from, from a coaching and development perspective at the senior manager director level, the majority of development dollars tend to be skewed towards executives. And so to find that you can really drive a significant shift from the worst performing teams to the best performing teams by investing in the teams, that to me was a really compelling story and different than I had really understood in my 30 years in corporate. And, it, you know, and I'll, I'll add to that too. I think, you know, what, I think what we've learned is it's not an or, Right. It's an and um, and both are needed. And, you know, it does take 
um, effective leadership, and it does take, um, you know, a, a group of, of leaders at the top of an organization to value uh, the work of teams um, and really have an, a, a deep understanding of, you know, what are the things that contribute to healthy teams that deliver the results that we expect. And, uh, you know, they're being able to spread that throughout an organization can have such an impact um, beyond just sort of investing in those, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty folks at the top of an organization. That sounds uh, like a very powerful nugget of gold for someone who is looking to make change across the board is to have an understanding of that. Tell us a little bit more, Abby, let me throw this one at you because I think I've been asking Linda a lot of questions. (laughs) No problem. Linda talked about, and this is something that you start off in the book with, the four team types. So I've got the title, Saboteur, Benign Saboteur, Situational Loyalist and Loyalist. What does that mean? Yeah, great. So, so you know, as Linda had said, you know, what we've been able to see through our work is that every team really can fall into and find themselves having the characteristics across these four types of teams that you described. And, you know, the, the loyalist team being the highest performing, highest functioning team, the saboteur team really on the other end of the spectrum is the team um, that is the most dysfunctional, the most toxic um, you know, really struggles um, often to deliver uh, the outcomes that are needed. Um, and then and then the two in the middle, and I'll describe them a little bit, are, you know, the benign saboteur, which is still not a great uh, or, or is, is a, a team that still is not really delivering a lot of value to the organization, but really isn't in that space of, um, you know, trying to um, really destroy one another, frankly. Um, and then our and then our other team is the situational loyalist, these middle teams. So let me first say a little bit about the saboteur team. Um, this is a team where, you know, the motives are about personal success. And the way that people often achieve that is that, you know, others fail. They have to see others fail for them to see themselves succeed, right? It's a sort of a zero-sum game. Um, a lot of distrust, suspicion, really this watch, I'm going to watch my back, I'm going to have to get to him before he gets to me um, and digging in on your views and and assuming that you're right. This is where you see undermining a lot of gossip. You know, lately we've been doing a lot of podcasts on gossip and how harmful gossip can be. And so, you know, this is these are these are some of the characteristics that we see in saboteur teams. They are they are the ones that that, uh, you know, really takes one one saboteur to start to see the rest of the team really behave in that same way. So that's the worst of the worst in that saboteur. As we you sort of move up the curve, right, um, it, to the next, which is what we call the benign saboteur team. This one is more focused on self-preservation. I need to survive. Uh, you know, this is where I've got to, I got to take care of myself. I just have to make sure there's, you know, sort of this, Kind of some harmony around me. I'm going to live and let live and stay in my lane. Not a lot of challenging of others. This is the classic siloed team. You know, they're not they're not out to get each other, but they're really not doing much um, to support or, or help one another. So that's benign saboteur. 
Then as you move up again, right, and we're we're almost to loyalists, but we're moving into what we call the situational loyalist team. This is a good team, but this is not the great, best, highest performing team. And what we see here is, you know, this is really about the team trying to come together, working to collaborate. They're not all the way there yet on full trust. You often see pockets of trust, right? Maybe there's 10 people on a team, and I know and I trust and I work a lot with three of them, but seven of them, um, I don't really and I don't necessarily go that extra mile um, with that group. So this is that idea that says we're good, but we can be better. Don't always put the hardest issues on the table, may avoid them if it's going to harm the relationship. And so, you know, with these teams, they can be um, they can deliver good results. But that what is unfortunate about them is often they'll stop there because they can be exceptional if they continue to push the envelope and move into really working on what these characteristics of loyalist teams are. And on a really great loyalist team, toughest issues are on the table. They give each other feedback even when it's really hard. They unequivocally have each other's back. And, you know, it's really about saying I'm accountable to a higher standard here on the way we're going to work and operate together, and I know you are too, and we're going to push each other and keep as hard as it may be sometimes to get through the toughest issues. We're going to do it. And, and we're going to be better as a result. And we have each other's back. And that's the loyalist team. So that's in a, in a longer than a nutshell um, description of the four types of teams that we really outline in our, in our book, The Loyalist Team. How do you know what team you're in? It sounds really obvious when you're standing on the outside looking in, for you, objectively, you might be able to look at a situation and tell right away. But if you're in that environment, it might not be so easy. How do you know which team you're in or which team you're supervising, which team you're dealing with if you're interacting with someone, for example, from the outside? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, great question. Often the, the team members in the team, they know. And we, you know, we do, we have a, we do a diagnostic with teams. Um, you know, we've got a checklist that we often will have teams use. The other thing is, is we've got um, these digital assessments that we've recently released that now anybody can go onto our website and look at and take them to diagnose your team. We've got a free one. We've also got more robust assessments that, that folks can pay for to really get a thorough deep dive into their team to do a really great diagnostic and recommendations on where to go and where to focus. Um, but, you know, when we work with teams, uh, I'll tell you what, we often find that the folks on the team know what type of team they're on once they understand what these characteristics are. And then, uh, you know, sometimes leaders, leaders won't always see it quite the same way the team will. Um, so sometimes we'll see a little bit of a disconnect there. And on our um, assessments, what we call Loyalist Team 2D and 3D, we actually are able to, to parse that apart, right? So you can see the leader's views, the team's views um, on the same scale um, to, really, to really work to align a team um, to have the same view of, of what's working and what's not working on a team so they know where to focus. Linda, would you add anything to that? No, I mean, the only thing I, I would, would say specifically if, if team members or team leaders are interested in taking our free assessment, just go to takesnapshot.com. Um, and in less than five minutes, based on your perspective, 
you'll get um, you'll get a response that that says which one of those four team types you're most likely on, and some ideas um, or insights around what you might do about it. Um, but I, I do absolutely agree with Abby. Um, having gone through, as she described, the four different team types, I think if 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 you reflect on those, um, you have some sense of of whether or not you're you're in that place. Uh, you're in the place of understanding what team you're on. We, we've basically got four pretty simple team labels that that are simpler than saboteur or situational loyalist. Um, you know, there's team hell, and you know if you're in team hell. Um, yeah, if, right. <laughs> if you're asking yourself what team, um, you're probably a benign saboteur team. If you're, yeah, it's good, but it's not great, and we could be better. Uh, you're probably a situational loyalist team. And if you're a loyalist team, it's like, I love these people. I love this work. I'm, I'm the best I've ever been. And this is the best place I've ever worked. So you know, you, people can usually find their way to which team type they're on just based on something that simple. Linda, in the book, you have this example. And I'm going to quote, who doesn't trust me enough to tell me what's going on? John asked <laughs> and added sincerely, who is it? I'll fire him. And that rings so true. I've seen scenarios like this one a million times. These managers who think that they're kings instead of managers and instead of leading, they're just bullying everybody. What do you do? Because as an aside, there seems to be a lot of that going on in the world today. And it doesn't seem to be just in business. It seems to be in politics. And it seems to have spread every time I hear news of another country, we're seeing more and more of this dictatorial approach. How do you deal with this? If you're interacting with someone like that, or worse yet, if you're in a team with someone like John? So with, with someone like John, it's like I hear you telling me that you want to have an open and communicative environment and you want to know what's going on in the team. But you understand that what you just did shut everybody down. And they may well go to the, yeah, damn right, that's what I meant. Um, and that's a data point for you if you're working with someone that is that entrenched and that intransigent around their position. Um, you have to wonder whether or not that's a place you want to stay. Um, but I, I oftentimes think that leaders in the moment um, don't necessarily understand or appreciate the impact their behaviors have um, on their teams. And, and when it's reflected back to them, that's not how they want to be. I mean, Abby said earlier, um, people don't show up at work to screw up. It's the same thing with leaders. I mean, they, they don't show up at work every day wondering how they can make everyone who works for them miserable. Um, they want to do better. But you know, sometimes as human beings, we just don't always have insight around our behavior. You know, and one of the things that we frequently see is the higher up you go, the less likely you are to have people around you that are going to tell you uh, the truth about how you're showing up and the impact that you are having on others. And you know, that's part of the work that we do with executives around our coaching and this work with teams. It, it often is about, you know, helping to, in a, you know, in a, safe way, hold up the mirror a little bit. Uh, in all of the work that I've done, I very, very rarely come across a leader who says, 
when they get that kind of feedback or understand that about themselves where they say, wow, you know, that's how I wanted to show up. You know, I, I want to be a tyrant. Um, and that's how I get results. And in some cases, some of them actually think that is how they get results. Um, and you know, they have to go through a process of, of, of exploration and relearning how to, how to lead in a different way and try different things to learn that there are other ways that, that work more effectively, um, than, than what they have believed in the past works as far as how they get results from their teams. Now, there are people who have this approach to life and to work, as you were describing earlier. It's sort of, I think of it as a take-no-prisoners kind of approach. There can be only one left standing. It makes me think of that famous uh, movie where the guy had to uh, cut off the heads of the other contenders because there could only be one left at the end. They approach life in that same way, meaning there's no place to negotiate. There's no place where both sides win. The only way they envision the business environment is one in which they are the absolute winner and everyone is on the floor at their feet. What do you do when you have an environment like that? And I think I heard you say you step away, but I just want to make sure. Yeah, so I'll I'll go with this one. Um, there there's some there's some more data. Surprisingly enough, there's some more data out there that would suggest that four percent of the U.S. population is sociopathic, um, which from a mental health perspective is epidemic. Um, and I would never be Pollyanna enough, Pollyannish enough to say, um, hey, you've you got to try and work with that person. Let me tell you how you have the conversation with them that you need to have to help them see, get some insights and understand the, the, the folly of their ways. If, if We'd never suggest that. On the flip side, though, that means that 96% of the population is not sociopathic and is generally and genuinely interested in in being in a better place and doing their best work. And so to the extent that you have someone who's showing up with really inappropriate behaviors, who has a belief system that fear is what motivates, um, at some point in time, and usually pretty quickly, they come up against some barriers that may be significant enough that they've run the team off into the ditch. And at that point in time, that's where you can have a conversation around, so this is your, this is your belief set. These are the tools that you're using. How is it working for you, Bill? Um, and you know, generally at that moment in time, there's some self-reflection that says, it's not working at all, but I don't know what to do about it. And that's where um, either we can come in and and help elevate that conversation, or as a team member, you have the opportunity to provide your own insights around um, what you think might be helpful uh, in, in having the team move to a different place. What role, if any, does your type of personality play in this team environment. And by that I mean specifically, or one of the things that I mean specifically, is whether you are more of an introvert or more of an extrovert, whether you derive your self-worth from inside or from others, and how does that affect the team dynamic? Uh, Who would want to take that? Avi, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, it's a, that's an interesting question, you know, as we think about these types of teams that we've seen. And you know, certainly when we, when we think about the extrovert versus the introvert, um, you know, we know that the extrovert often gets their energy from being around others, from, you know, the, the meetings, the brainstorming, the energy that comes with, you know, being around people, solving problems, you know, in a room with people. And for the introvert, who's just as capable of doing that, it just happens to, you know, sort of suck the life out of them from an energy perspective. And, you know, we know that the introvert needs their time um, to recharge when they have a really hard problem to solve. You know, the introvert is going to say, let me go into my quiet space, close my door and do some thinking and some work. And the extrovert is the one that may say, hey, let's go set up a meeting and let's all get our ideas out on the table and, and see where we where we want to take it. And so, you know, in the work that we do with teams, it really is about how, having teams understand each other, having the members of the team understand each other's preferences and really working to, you know, create that environment that allows for everybody to show up in their authentic way. And, you know, one is certainly not better than the other. Um, and teams who work to find find that blend that works. And, you know, on a, on a great team, you're actually able to say, look, hey, my introverted tendencies, I can't, you know, I don't, it, I'm not finding it very effective for us to be sitting in these long meetings, problem solving. Can we break it up? Can we do it differently? And, and they're able to, to say that. And the team says, oh, yeah, right. Okay, got it. You know, we need to, to think about this. So, you know, does extrovert or introvert have, a, have a, an impact on how effective a team can or can't be. I don't think it does. Um, I think it's really about a team coming together to really understand one another and, um, you know, find what's going to work for them. Linda, do you have any, any ads to that? We do a lot of personality work with our, with our teams and our clients too. Yeah. The, the only thing I would add is the notion that, um, effective teams are able to either, uh, lean into their diversity and use that as a strength that they can leverage um, as opposed to um, have it be something that pulls the teams apart. So uh, I actually think that the more diverse a team might be from a personality perspective or preference perspective um, really has the potential to create even greater strength for, for a team than a team that's made up of from from one set of preferences, where you're you're at risk for having groupthink and having some pretty big blind spots uh, within the team. If I'm a leader and I have a successful loyalist team, or I want to have a successful loyalist team, are there particular types of people that I need? in order for that to work. To, just to s simplify that, if I'm baking a cake, I need flour and sugar and butter, etc. in order for the final recipe to work out. Do you have to have those exact types in those exact quantities in order to have a loyalist team? Or does the composition of the loyalist team vary depending on the company, the circumstances, and the people themselves? And whoever of you wants to take Linda? Yeah. Um, no, the, the, the personal characteristics and the personal preferences of a loyalist team 
can vary dramatically from team to team, from industry to industry, from culture to culture. The, the common attributes or characteristics of members of a loyalist team would be around the, the willingness to engage um, proactively in, in living up to and holding each other accountable around the operating norms, around assuming positive intent, around extending and granting trust. Um, those are the characteristics and attributes of members of a loyalist team. And it doesn't matter whether you're um, a, an ENTJ or a blue from Insights or um, an I from DISC. Uh, none of those aren't the elements that define the, the makeup of a loyalist team. In other words, there is no secret formula. There is no cookie court cutter that you can use to create a loyalist team from scratch? Well, um, no, it's it's not a secret. Um, We think we have it in our book, (laughs) how you actually can be really intentional about building a loyalist team. Because we we believe that that great teams don't just happen by accident. Um, Great teams happen because of intention and the intention that the team leader and the team members bring into that team environment and by by being clear in expectations and by holding um, themselves and each other accountable for delivering against those expectations. I think what yeah. I was trying to say, sorry, just to clarify, you can't just take someone from accounting and someone from marketing and someone from finance and throw them into a room and say, these are all the types that we need to make a loyalist team and therefore we now have one. No, it, 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 it's around, um, you, can, you can certainly take people from different walks of life and different functional groups, but you have to approach that in, in the same way as you might a more traditional intact team of saying here are, how, here are expectations around how we're going to engage with each other. Here are the goals that we're going to share that we will be equally accountable for delivering against. Sorry, Abby, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? Oh, I think you said it. We're, we're good. Okay. We're good. One of you talked about diversity. Tell us a little bit more about the role of diversity, all kinds of diversity, from gender to area of specialty, etc. Why is diversity important in a loyalist team? So, and this is Abby. I'll, I'll answer that. You know, for for the loyalist team, the, the 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 real outcome that we see from loyalist teams is they they have better, more robust conversations. They're able to solve the toughest problems, and they're really able to innovate and uh, you know create um, the new and 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 drive positive momentum and and results that are really different and unique. And, and to do that, we, you know, we know the research is really clear too. You create that through diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, and, you know, diversity of, of personality. And that, in fact, is the, the hallmark of a loyalist team. And, you know, it also makes it a little bit harder. And, you know, we know when, when people with different views, different, um, you know, beliefs and experiences come together, 
they've got to work really hard to listen to each other, to hear one another's views, to truly seek to understand and come from a place of inquiry in every interaction. And, you know, what loyalist teams are best at is that, right? They're, this idea of I come from a place of inquiry. I am there to understand is in the the cornerstone of a loyalist team, and that's what allows them to create these really great results. And a diverse team um, allows you to, to, to be even better. I've read and heard from a number of credible sources that oftentimes very large companies lose the creative edge that they had when they started as tiny companies in someone's garage and the nimble ability to make decisions because of the many depths and layers and the minutia of, that comes with being a large company. Is that something that also plays a role in having diversity and in having a loyalist team? What have you found, Linda? So I, I, what you said I think is very true, and I think a lot of companies, as they grow and get larger, um, become a little complacent around um, being able to share and articulate the, the, the pillars and underpinnings of the cultural values that they have um, and their expectations as an organization as to how they're going to engage and behave with each other. Uh, and those companies that, that do invest in really being able to uh, clearly articulate um, the type of culture and the cultural values and underpinnings they want and combine that with um, a really robust strategic um, vision are the companies that can continue to be nimble and flexible and move quickly. In this data mining that you were telling us about earlier in the assessment teams that you've worked with, are you finding more loyalist teams in certain types of companies, be it by size or the industry that they're in? What kinds of findings do you have that you might share with us in that regard? So we really do not see um, a difference based on industry, based on size of company. I think, you know, every team or, you know, it's a, it's a group of people um, who come together to, you know, put put a set of goals in place that they need to figure out how to achieve together. And, you know, that's complicated. That's a, it's a lot of human beings um, with different skill sets, different experiences, different ways of working. And, uh, you know, again, like, you know, if only there was like the perfect formula of um, personalities and experience uh, that would that would create the team. But nope, instead, it's a group of human beings you know, with flaws and, and strengths um, all together as one. And so, you know, every leader and every team faces the same set of um, challenges, obstacles, and opportunities. And, no, we really don't see um, a difference across industries or size. We see more often than not what we see is really similar um, challenges, which is why we were able to write this book, right, to be able to see these are the things that if teams can really get intentional and focused, they can make 
significant progress in the health and the results that a team can deliver. On that line, I think you, it was you, Linda, who mentioned early on that this unicorn loyalist team exists in about 15% of the cases. Is there anything, an abundance of loyalist teams in a particular geographic area? Is there anything at all that you have found in looking at these loyalist teams that might surprise us? So I wish I could tell you where to relocate so you could find an abundance of teams to you choose from. You figured it out, huh? <laughs> um, but unfortunately, no, it, it's as Abby said, um, it, it really is. Um, it's, across, it's across industry boundaries. It's across geographical boundaries. Um, it's across different industry types. I mean, you, you might think that in mission-driven organizations, so a nonprofit that is heavily mission-driven, um, that you might find more loyalist teams. But oftentimes, even in that environment, what we found is that as, as people come into mission-driven organizations, they're bringing with them their own genuine, deeply held passion for the mission of the business and how they think that can best be actualized. And so I come in with my view and my passion and my drive and my commitment and you come in with yours and it's very different from mine, it's oftentimes really difficult to um, to have those teams come together in, in a loyalist way. They're more often than not in that situational loyalist space, um, but you might think they would actually be loyalists. And in fact, even in those businesses um, or those organizations, we find they struggle just as much as, as your for-profit, multi-billion dollar, somewhat faceless global entity. I think, you know, one more thing I'll add to that that's interesting if you think across cultures. And, you know, Linda and I both um, had the, the the privilege of working in large organizations where we've been either head of HR or you know, head of talent or what, what may be. And, and you often see there's different cultures where um, this idea that says, you know, respect the hierarchy, do what you're told. Right. This sort of don't engage in conflict. The boss, the leader's always right is is much more of a cultural, um, you know, overarching attribute. You know, we we would see uh, I work for a big global um, gold mining company for 10 years. We would see across companies, say, in Peru, for example, or in Indonesia, you know, you would see almost like a you know, 90 percent. Uh, you know, of uh, high levels of employee engagement and, you know, and then you, you know, turn to the U.S. and, you know, you're seeing significantly lower numbers. So there's definitely sort of cultural differences, but, you know, we do not define the loyalist team as being, being loyal in the sense that says I'm blindly loyal. We define loyalist team in terms of, you know, loyalist teams have so much trust that they put their hardest issues out there. They do, push the status quo. They do put their issues, challenges, concerns out there all for the goal of making things better. And so, you know, the word loyalty um, and loyalist team to many, those don't necessarily mean the same thing. You know, once a team is a healthy loyalist team, there is a lot of loyalty to one another and it's to see each other succeed, to see the team succeed, to see the, you know, the goals and the mission of the team and the business succeed. Um, but it's not to do it blindly. Um, it's, you know, and to essentially agree with things you fundamentally 
you know, and from a values perspective can't align with, that's not at all what it means. What about these situations that have been so much in the news lately regarding sexual harassment, sexual assault, discrimination, retaliation? Obviously, they're a lot less likely to happen in the loyalist team, but for the other 85% of the teams, how do you deal with this in an environment where we've seen, for him, for example, we've heard a lot about this being the culture in places like Silicon Valley and Hollywood. Um, so clearly the culture in an environment where it's top-down and it's pervasive is, has to have a reflection of that. What do you do when you have these toxic situations in the work environment? So I would I would suggest in situations like that um, that the the best you can do is to find your voice. Um, those situations prevailed and those cultures grew um, because people who um, who either and I'm not suggesting that this is incumbent on the victims, but people who knew. Um, who observed and the, the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, it's like everybody knew um, that it, that no one found their voice in a way to say that this is unacceptable. Um, and it gets back to you know, that notion of, of unloyalist teams. Um, they are much more likely to address unacceptable team behaviors. And I would just in, encourage anyone who finds themselves in that space to to have the opportunity to find their voice because if, if anything hopefully this this flurry of activity that we're seeing in the media and in the news tells us that situations don't improve in, with silence and one of the things that I often struggle with uh, when, when, when people choose not to be actively engaged I want for folks to understand when something bad is going on um, or when someone makes an inappropriate joke or an inappropriate comment, when you say nothing um, and you're standing there beside the person who's who's done that, that person takes your silence as implicit consent to their behavior. And, and so these toxic environments grow in silence. They grow in the shadows. And if you choose to live in that environment, you should know that it, it's, it, it can only get worse. It won't even stay the same. I mean, that's not even best case scenario. So I would encourage folks to, to find their voice, to, to find a way to have the conversation, to bring up the inconsistencies in behavior. Um, it, Uber taught us, I mean, how, what the situation with Uber CEO, when, when the organization really came together, um, they were able to, as, as a unit, basically move out the, the founder of the business. In some situations, we've seen this toxic environment seems to have been going on for decades as, and it, that it's taken such a long time for people to have the courage to stand up and speak because, as we saw in some of the cases, there was retaliatory behavior for those people who said no or who dared to speak up. There were police departments who refused to file mm -hmm. charges against these men in some cases. 
in some cases, the person felt so small and that they had no power that they didn't dare to speak. What is available to you in a situation like that? The um, well, great, great, great question. <laughs> I, you know, um, well, Linda, you were going to say something. You probably got something much more pithy than, than I t- to respond to what is, you know, a real deep challenge. I don't know that this is pithy, but um, as I was listening to you, it was was taking me to the place where um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, hashtag me too was was really strongly out there in social media. And a a number of very close friends of mine, um, they posted and they're hashtag me too. Um, And I didn't. Um, not because I couldn't own the label hashtag me too, because I certainly have experienced that uh, in my, my career. Um, but this notion of um, going through life as a victim um, where you have been victimized, it, I just have this belief that says as you stay in silence, it keeps you in that space where you are not able to really effectively star in your own life to take center stage and a a belief that I have in every human being and and their dignity and their right to to claim their space and and to find that support that will allow them to be able to to speak up and step out of that victim mode because whether it has to do with sexual assault or sexual harassment or workplace workplace environment that is, is, is a tough work environment to work in if you are living your life from that victim mode, you are absolutely living a suboptimal experience. And life is just way too short for for us to, to stay there or for us to give over the right to someone else to keep us there. Abby, did you have something to say? Yeah, no. I, you know, I mean, I think, I, I think the... The piece of advice that, that I would have for folks that are in those situations, be it discrimination uh, or even just that toxic environment of any kind, is, you know, find your voice. Um, find folks in the organization you can trust, you know, be it HR, be it a colleague, and and be, be willing um, to make a change as, as hard as, as courageous as it may be is, is be willing to walk away, um, from things that are causing, causing pain, you know, and often you, you know, it's where you've got mental, physical, emotional, um, signs that really become apparent. And we all know what those feel like and look like if we've been in those environments. And sometimes you have to walk away from them, um, and do what you need to do. To, to take care of yourself. You know, I'm a big proponent to if somebody's really in this, get a therapist. <laughs> There's no, no shame in a therapist. Um, if you're in those environments and you're struggling to, to find your way out of them and you don't feel like you've got support inside, you know, if you've got a way to get, get through it inside the organization is look external and use any of the resources you have external that can help you, a mentor, a therapist that can help you think it through um, and, and find your way through it and out of it. What 
tips or suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to strive for a loyalist team if they're not on one or perhaps if they're in the loyalist team and they want to make sure that they continue to be in such a team what tips or suggestions would you share perhaps each of you can share a couple uh, or maybe one of you wants to take the lead uh, I'll leave that up to you uh, rather than putting you on the spot. <laughs> uh, Abby, you want to go while we pick out? Yeah, go for it. Um, so I, I would encourage you, if, if you're looking to be in a loyalist team, start to talk about the team you want to have. Um, start to talk about um, the, the, the team that you, you see aspirationally. Um, people can connect with that aspiration. If you start off with, let me tell you everything that's wrong with this team and why things just are in such a bad place around here, um, it's harder for people to connect with that. So start with with some aspirational ideas around where the team might be and see who you can co-opt in starting to, to build that energy and build that momentum around that. Um, if you're on a loyalist team already and you have the best team, make sure that nothing is happening on the team where you're seeing um, people start to get complacent. It, it takes a lot of work to be in a loyalist base, and oftentimes people are really reluctant to, to rock the boat. It's like we worked really hard to get to the relationships we have today, and, and I don't want to give this little piece of feedback because I think it, 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 it might just not land well. Loyalist teams are relentless about having candor and authenticity in every single engagement and trusting that the nature and quality of the relationship that we have that got us to be loyalists will will sustain and maintain us through whatever trials um, and tribulations we might have. You know, and I think that the thing I would add to that is loyalist teams don't just happen. They take work and committing to the work of building a great team is is the first place to start its commitment. Um, you know, we talked about this earlier, but diagnose your team. Know what your starting point is. Uh, you go figure out, are you a benign saboteur team? And define where you want to go and start to build that roadmap to get there and put those operating norms in place and establish a really great cadence for the team that's a rhythm that the team can start to work towards uh, and create that kind of um, healthy, high-performing team. And this is not something that has to come from the top down, as I heard you say earlier, that a very large percentage of the success of the teams comes from the relationships within. Did I understand correctly, Linda? You got it. You got yeah. it. Okay. Well, thank you, Abby and Linda, for joining us from Denver and Philadelphia. We were very happy to be with you today. We sure appreciate it. Thank you. It's our pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you, Lena. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to authors Linda Adams and Abby Curnow-Chavez, who discussed The Loyalist Team. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.